0: In spring 2023, Mark Boris, the head men's tennis coach at Tulane University received some devastating personal health news, taking him away from his team, family and everything else in life for several months. In this podcast, Dave and Mark discuss his unexpected journey, his recovery from a heart transplant and his hopes for the future. Mark also shares advice on the skills needed in order to excel in this profession lessons he's learned from coaching some of college tennis's finest players, and the importance of patience. And coaches, we know how demanding the beginning of the school year is. So before we get this podcast started, this is a friendly reminder to use your ITA team workspace to stay current on important announcements, update your rosters, and check WTNs, among many other tools. Thanks for joining us, coaches. We hope you enjoy this podcast.
1: Mark Boris. Welcome to the ITA College Tennis Coaches Podcast.
0: Dave, thanks for having me. So exciting to be here with you. Uh, I I didn't know what I had to do to get on one of these things, but apparently I had to do something special uh, just to to make a, a splash on the scene or at least get in your radar somehow. So well, it's the only way. Here,
1: so. Yeah, co- coaches know now what what it takes to get on the podcast, but we're we're gonna get into that because I think many of our coaches know the ordeal or parts of the ordeal you've gone through um you know the, the coaching community which i love dearly just rallied around you like like no other i know from an ita staff perspective we were all you know very saddened to learn what you were going through and then obviously pulling for you talking about you often and so uh it's amazing to be here with you virtually i can't wait to see you in person at some point and give you a big hug but we'll we'll get there we'll get there soon enough but For those coaches, Mark, that maybe don't know what you've gone through the last few months, and even those that do, uh, I think are interested to hear the story over the last few months, how you started feeling, you know, sick, the diagnosis, your response to that, what you went through in Cleveland... Coming back now to Tulane and how you're doing and and what the prognosis is going forward for you. So if you can take us through that, that would be amazing.
0: Sure, yeah. Um. Uh, thanks for having me again. And like you said at the beginning, the 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 support. I can't even tell you how amazing it's been. I mean, the the. When I was in the hospital, I, the messages I was getting like from people I hadn't heard from from high school, from, you know, grown up across the street, neighbors from everything and people just supporting and donating and doing everything you could possibly think of the prayers going around the world, everybody and the college coaching community taking off with everything. And like you guys did, it said it with the ITA and everybody staying on top of things. I mean, I can't even, you know. I can't even explain how much encouragement and inspiration that is uh for for me during a very dark time, right? You know, I was stuck in the hospital for a few months basically in the ICU, right? And and I mean, just to to have somebody somebody kind of reaching out all the time, all the time, someone reaching out to encourage me. I mean, it taught me a lot, you know, about you know, what I'm supposed to be doing with my life. Right. (laughs) And how much I don't do that for people. I'm really a bad person compared to what just, you know, everybody did for me for three months. (laughs) I think I need to make some changes. So, uh, but no, so thank you guys so much for everything, college world, tennis world, everybody. So, and just world in general. So, but yeah, so, uh, I guess, uh, if we kind of did start from the beginning, everybody always asks, they're like, Hey, you know, when did you start feeling sick? I saw you, you know, we played you a couple of years ago. Yeah. you be fine. I we, you're hitting balls, you know, yeah. what's going on. And I was like, well, yeah, I mean, I was, uh, you know, uh, as of a couple of years ago, I mean, I was climbing a mountain in Montana with Eric and Lisa Holden, you know, great people and boosters and friends of the family. And I go out there, my wife and I are climbing mountains for a week and I'm running, you know, I don't know, training to run a a 10k and doing all this stuff. And, and then uh, like sometime within the past, you know, couple years, I started to get a little bit tired. And, um, and yeah, I'm getting older or whatever. And so I was like, okay, I'm getting older, I'm getting unfit, you know, I gotta, I gotta, uh, I gotta get fit again. So about two years ago, I started getting tired, you know, playing tennis or or going for a jog or something. And I could, you know, go c- for a couple miles. But then at the end, I'd be really pooped. And I was like, this is weird. And then, um, I, you know, I usually play tennis for, you know, two, three hours, right? It, with the guys standing in a corner, you know, not really running, playing singles anymore. But I could just always stay out there and do something. And then I would go and play for like 30 minutes and all of a sudden be hunched over. So, like, I really got to get fit. So I ignored that for a while, just like anybody else would Uh, like any really bad patient would. Uh, And really, uh, uh, um, uh, yeah. (laughs) So I ignored that for a long time. And then um, it started to get worse every month, basically. And uh, I kept on ignoring it. And then my wife was pregnant and we had a baby in July of last year. And uh, right before that, it started getting like really bad where my heart rate was like shooting up to like 170. And I was standing still, warming up on the tennis court. Like, I mean, literally standing still, not even split yeah. stepping or moving my feet in any way, shape, or form. Just standing there, moving my arm, like, okay, I'm good, feeling good. And then all of a sudden, my heart rate would shoot up and really, really high. And um, so I told one of my uh, uh, friends here who is also a tennis, two lane tennis alum, and is also a cardiologist. I told him what was going on, a, a guy that I played, you know, doubles with at, at the club or whatever. And, and uh he's like, All right, uh, we gotta talk, we gotta get you in and take a look at you. And, and then that passed, and I blew that off for a couple months. And then I was playing doubles with him at the club, and uh it was just summer day, and he's like 70 or 65 years old, and he's fit as a fiddle, right? And he can he's running all over the floor, he's covering the entire court. I'm basically hitting a serve and standing still. And I'm hunched over. He's like, Mark, what's going on? I was like, I don't know. Just I can't breathe, you know, and and I showed him my watch. And I said, my heart rate was like 175. He goes, Mark, I'm 67 years old and my heart rate's 90. And I've been covering the whole court. And I said, I know. And I said, this has been going on for a while. And he goes, "Okay, you got to come in. So I go into him, starts treating me for every single thing you can do. Starts doing all these tests, starts doing these catheters, starts checking to see if I got any clogs, doing all this kind of stuff. Everything is clear as can be like healthiest. uh, And I go to the pulmonologist, I go to a blood doctor. I have a a panel of eight doctors here that are trying to figure out what's going on with me for about, for about eight months. And uh, he's, you know, he's, he and the other cardiologists are working together, putting me on different medicines, trying to see if they can get my heart rate to, to settle and try to get things to respond well. And, and uh, nothing would work. So no medicine would work. And, and every month I kept on getting worse and he was just shaking his head going, this is unbelievable. I can't, you know, I can't make any sense of this. And so, uh, so, you know, he, he kept on trying some different things, just took the, your usual protocol, you know, like cardiologists do say, if you have this, do this, If you have this, do this. And so he was doing it all and nothing was responding. And, uh, um, and then, uh, finally, like I got to like January of 23 and, I was, I mean, I was like awful. Right. So like I could, I could barely walk across the court and like, so when we were doing matches, we we're getting ready to do dual matches. And, and I'm telling Zaki, you know, the assistant coach was like, I can take court six, you know, and maybe court five. And you've got to do everything. I said, I can literally, I won't be able to get to court four sure. in time. And I said, cause anytime I stand up, what happened? I, so basically what was, was happening was I had no oxygenated blood. Uh, my right side, uh, uh, was like pumping at like 10 ejection fracture or 12. And then, and so there's no oxygenated oxygenated blood being made. And so no oxygenated blood going to my lungs. So I couldn't breathe. So my O2 level is supposed to be at, like, if you just have it on your watch or whatever, like right now it's a hundred or 99 or 98, that's normal. Mine was at 70 and 80, right? So as soon as I stand up my O2 level and my blood goes to 70 or 80, it means there's no oxygen going to my whole system. And, uh, so I couldn't breathe. And, um, so anyway, so he's, you know, he's trying to treat me for all this stuff and it just keeps on getting worse, keeps on getting worse, keeps on getting worse. And I'm not exaggerating, like my wife's watching it get worse. And she's like, honey, you know, you can't even make it up the stairs in your house. I had to stop three times going up the stairs in our house because I, I couldn't go more than five steps without like hunching over and, and, uh, and, and I was like, yeah, yeah, I know, I know I'm worse, but the doctor's treating me let's just give these you know, meds time and you know, be patient with it. And she's like, okay, okay, okay. And I was, you know, super fortunate because like I told you, my uh, doctor was like a good friend. Right. So he yeah. was texting me every two, three days instead of my, you know, me going to see him every four weeks or two weeks or something see how something's doing. He's, you know, text me, Mark, how are you doing? What's the, what's your blood pressure? What's I was like, Oh, actually it's worse. And he's like, Oh my gosh, this is unbelievable. So, so, uh, so, so we get to like, I don't know, February, March. And I'm like, I told you, I had a panel of eight different you know doctors from all these places working on stuff. Say so it might be this, might be this, might be this, nobody can figure anything out. And I got to the point where I, I couldn't, I couldn't go to matches anymore. And our administration was like, Mark, are you sure you really want to be coaching right now? And I was like, yeah, I'm fine. Just, I can do this. You know, I'll just stand over there and you know, yeah. it, you, you really, you know, can you fly? Can you do that? I was like, yeah, I got a rolling bag. I'm fine. I can do this, you know? <laughs> and I'm like, I'll be fine. The medicine's going to kick in or something's going to happen. Right. I mean, this is, you know, I'd never been sick my whole life. Right. i never been on a medicine my whole life. So I was like, this is going to go away. Right. So, uh, so yeah, so March comes around and one of the doctors, they do some blood tests on me and they're like, my blood's like mud. And, uh, and there's no oxygen going to it. They're like, you can't fly. And, you know, cause you'll get a clot and you'll die literally on the plane. Um, and so, uh, so you can't go anywhere with your team. Um, you can go to work or you can go to practice at home, but we're not gonna allow you to travel. And so I I remember missing the California trip, uh, as the first like thing I had to sit out. And then the next week I missed going to Tulsa and Oklahoma state. The next week I missed some other away trip. And, um, uh, and then he, he, so I came back, or, I mean, I was just there, he goes, we're going to do an MRI on you and, and, uh, and see what's going on because this is, you know, it's been almost a year we've been treating you. So let's see what's going on. So I said, okay, cool. They go and they do the MRI and, and I had just been cleared actually by the, by the, uh, the, the, uh, one of the other doctors to fly again, cause my blood levels went back to normal or something. So so I went on the, the trip to Florida to play SMU and USF and, and uh and ucf and um and uh and so i, I get a call while we're get, at getting ready to play smu and you know it's like you have your phone on you know you're never supposed to answer the phone but i was like something's gonna happen i need to result right and it's like 10 or 15 minutes before the match and uh doctors like mark i got some tough news and i was like oh boy and uh, he says he says, I've never seen anything like this. He says, your heart is in awful condition. And uh, he goes, there's scarring everywhere. There's clotting in every valve. There's, there's, you know, it's swollen, you know, beyond whatever size. And he said, there's, there's things that we can't even, I mean, we have no idea what's going on. And they said, uh, so we're going to send you up to Cleveland. We talked to some doctors and we're going to send you up to Cleveland to get some, some tests and, and go from there. And I was like, I mean, how bad is it? He goes, Mark, this is bad. And he goes, I, you know, I'm telling you as a friend, like, you know, I, I would, you know, you need to get up there as soon as possible. And, um, so I remember crying. I was sitting in the bathroom in the, at USF, you know, in that back room to talking on the phone and trying to stay out of the way. And I was like, oh, geez, this is bad. And, uh, and so like about a week later, um, maybe 10 days later, I went up to Cleveland and, uh. Saw the doctor there and, you know, they're literally the number one heart hospital in the world for 29 years straight. And uh, so it's like these guys have figured things out. So I'm still, you know, super, super positive and optimistic. I'm in there at the doctor's appointment. He's like, hey, good to see you, Mr. Boris, blah, blah, blah. I just want to let you know, you know, we're going to treat you with every single thing we can do. Right. And uh, just the tests that your cardiologist has run are shocking. And they're showing us that your heart is a lot sicker than you think it is. And I was like, okay, well, you know, that's what I'm here for. So let's run some tests. And uh, it just happened to be, we had conference tournament that weekend on Friday. And so I packed a bag to go to Cleveland on Monday and I said, okay, that's cool. It's just, you know, I'm here for a few days. I heard right. And, and we'll run some tests. I just need to fly out by Thursday morning and, uh, and try to be at practice Thursday night. And then we play on Friday. So I said, I don't want to miss conference tournament. And he goes, okay. <laughs> and, uh, And I was like, okay, cool. Right. And uh, I mean, that's literally how I was talking. I was like, okay, this is fine. Right. And I said, I'm here, I'm getting tests I to get some pills. I'll get out of here. You know, we're going to fix this. And uh, he said, okay, I just want to, he goes, I'm not saying this is going to happen, but I just want you to know that your results right now and things, we haven't even run one test on you, but just on what we've seen and what's been run, you are a very good candidate for a heart transplant. And I was like, I mean, pin drop silence, right? And I mean, you could just like, I must have turned white as a ghost, right? And, and, and I was like, what? I was like, it, it, you, you know, I was like, are you serious? You look at me. I'm 50 years old. <laughs> you know, I'm fit. I climbed a mountain last year. I'm doing whatever. you're telling me I need a heart transplant. And he goes, no, I'm not telling you, you need one. I'm saying that you're a good candidate for one based on what these tests are showing us right now. I said, we're going to treat you literally with everything we have. We're going to test you with everything we have. We're going to do everything we can to try to get you out of here on some pills basically. And, and, and yeah, let you live a productive life. But I just want to let you know that this is a very, you know, you're, you're, you're a lot sicker than you think you are. And I was like, okay, I'm shaking my head. And I just kind of got quiet and I was like, all right, I gotta get out of here. You know, <laughs> this guy's crazy. And uh, you know, this is like literally best doctors in the world, right? And who do this for a living and I'm shaking my head going, and I remember getting walking out of that room and as I was getting ready to get checked into the uh to the hospital and I called my brother and I was like, I think you gotta come get me, man. This is great. <laughs> and he was like, I will come get you right now, Mark. He goes, "You," and uh and and so uh yeah, so that was kind of like the beginning of the Cleveland part where I got there and they started doing these tests and they uh they um basically i mean ran the gamut right of everything and and uh uh so 9 weeks basically i was in the icu i had these neck catheters stuck in my neck forever you know feeding me pills and whatever because i, I wasn't going to be able to sustain without them or whatever and um and there were giving me different medicines and all this different stuff and said, here's what we're doing. And they're, um, they're really unbelievable how they, you know, went through it all and explained it all. And I was like, yeah, sounds great. Let's do it. And every single thing, not one like budge of anything, like my heart wouldn't budge. And, and they could not diagnose me either. So like every day the doctor would come in in the morning for the little round, you know, waiting to hear what they're going to say, you know, each day it's, you know, like, Hey, we're good. Yeah, we got some good results. We saw your blood and, you know, and, Every yeah, day it was the same. Thing. It was like, Mark, you're the most complex case we've ever seen, and it, this coming from the doctors who look at this stuff for a living, right? And that, like, right. people with complex cases go to Cleveland on, you know, from Dubai, from Europe, from everywhere. They go there because these guys are specialized in complex cases, and they said you're the most complex case we've ever seen. And I said, "We you said, you're supposed to be doing this, but you're not doing this. You're, you do this and then you're supposed to do this, but your heart doesn't do this. And they said, we still don't know what, what's wrong with you. And so they keep treating me, keep treating me, keep treating me. And, and finally, they come up with one last treatment, uh, like a massive steroid treatment um, to try to take the swelling down in the heart and well, so the reason they don't know what what's really wrong with me is because they can't they can't do a biopsy on my heart because of all the clots that were there. So mm-hmm. if they go in and do the biopsy and they break something loose, a clot could go loose and you would die basically immediately, right? Oh. So they're like, "What we would normally do is do a biopsy, but with all your clots, we can't do it." And the clots weren't going away with the medicine, and so they said, "We're just gonna, you know, we have to keep on trying to treat you in different ways and 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 trying to figure out what's going on in different ways." So like the last one they did was a massive steroid treatment for like a week. And, uh, I mean, it was like, you know, like horse level steroids. I mean, it, like it, it was both like the way they explained it, like, basically the amount of steroids we're giving you would kickstarted a horse's heart and yours isn't responding at all.
1: Hmm. And
0: I was just like, I remember, you know, that was kind of like in the bed. The last thing I knew, they said, this is our last treatment we're going to do for you. Our last thing, we don't have anything else. And, uh, and when they took, came back and told me after a week, they are like, your heart hasn't even budged one, one percentage point. And it's actually gotten worse in some ways. And I was like, oh, geez. And, uh, they said, we're going to have to, you know, get a transplant. And, you know, I was sitting there in bed, I started crying because I was so hopeful this was like going to be the one that worked. And I was like, you know, steroids always work when you're sick, they give you prednisone and the antibiotic and you get better. Right. And, and, uh, I was like, oh, this is going to work. And, you know, didn't move. And, um, so so, yeah, so I was really sad, but I, at that point I had nine weeks of kind of preparing for it, like with my wife and, praying mm-hmm. a lot and trying to get some peace about it and learning more about heart transplants and whatnot. So then they put me on the transplant list, um, at that point and then, you know, miracles continued to happen. Right. So I'm, if anybody knows me, they know I'm really tall. Right. So basically what, when you get a transplant, you have to get a heart that is relative to your your chest cavity and your size. So yeah. it doesn't mean I have to have a six foot six tall dude die. It just means I have to have a big enough person die with the same size heart. And it could be a man or a woman. It could be anybody. Right. And, mm-hmm. uh, but it has to be a big person. So they're like, all right, Mark, here's, you know, part two of the marathon that we're talking about right here. And just so said this, you know, people wait months and years for hearts. Right. And, and yeah. I was fortunate enough to go up on the list to like a, to, to the, to the top category because i was had to be in the icu so i didn't i was like uh you know there's six levels of of uh, uh where you're at on the list i was at a level two level one is like only if you have complete heart failure and complete lung failure and you're living off of a machine or something um so i couldn't be a one but i was a number two and uh they just said you know it's got to be patient here we have no idea when it's going to happen and, it, and when it does happen it has to be a perfect match right so it's just like you not only does a person big have to pass away, but they have to be a donor and it has to be a perfect match and all the different things that are in there. So I'm like, again, start shaking my head, going, oh boy, this could be, you know, I've been here for two months. This could be a long, you know, a, a really long, you know, experience. Right. And, yeah. and uh, so just kind of being patient, being patient and, you know, going through it. And then two weeks later, I get a heart and uh you know just jumping for joy i mean crying like a baby and everybody's celebrating and and, uh go in the next morning they they tell me that day i go in that night the next morning at like 4 a.m surgery went unbelievable they said it was a perfect match and uh and it was like one of the easiest surgeries the guy had done in forever and he said because everything matched so well and and uh yeah so then i had the heart may 30th and um Uh, let's see, recovery ICU, and then I was in the diet, I was basically in the hospital for about 14 more days, I think. And on day 10, I actually walked a mile in the hospital with the rehab people. And they, you know, they'd been walking me a little bit because they want, like, first, yeah, as soon as you can walk, like, they're like, we need you to start walking, right? Mm -hmm. And they get you up, and I'm like, I've got wires coming out of me, IVs in every arm, neck, blah, 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 and you know and and i just got a new heart and they're like no no we got to get up you know let's let's get up and i was like i i can't even negotiate half this stuff right yeah. and uh so but i started moving around and and they said yeah you know well they said hey listen let's start walking around so we go around the floor a bunch of times and they've clocked it and they said uh, if you want you know we have this board over here that you showed me this board like in this room and it had all these stars on it and uh said um if you want you can try to do a mile uh, when you're ready and you can write a star on the board. And, and I was like, that's all somebody had to tell me, right? It was like, <laughs> I challenge you. I dare you to do this. Right. And I was like, so, uh, so I remember after she told me that like the day later, I, went. I was like, all right, let's do this. And she's like, really? And I was like, yeah, let's see how far I can get, whatever. And, uh, so we did it that day and I wrote the star yeah. on the board. I was like, yeah. So it was like day 10 after the heart. And, at doctors again, were just amazed at the recovery that was going on. Um, And uh, they had attributed some of, a lot of it because I was a little bit younger and already in decent uh, condition. Like the rest of my organs were good. So a lot of people that are sick, they have problems with different organs as well. So mine were all in really good condition and I wasn't like sick in any other way. And I already had like a decent amount of muscle tone and whatnot at like fitness level, I guess. even though I wasn't, you know, I'd been sick for a year and a half. So I'd already, you know, hadn't been doing anything I was still in a good condition. So my body started recovering fast. And, um, so yeah, so I get out and, and started walking a couple miles a day. I would stay in Cleveland for eight weeks for the testing with the biopsies and going in every week for a biopsy and they test you for rejection, um, to see, cause what happens is, When you get a heart transplant or a transplant of any kind your body treats that new organ like a virus and so it tries to reject that organ like immediately and so i'm on like an insane level of drugs that take away my immune system so that it doesn't fight the new heart um and uh yeah so you got to go in every week for biopsies um where they cut out pieces of your heart and then they check it for rejection so i did that for eight weeks in cleveland and just kept on doing my my walking and stuff was walking two three miles a day feeling good and then after those uh were all clear they cleared me to go home and the doctor said you know you're doing so great with your recovery I'm going to clear you to go to work, I'm going to clear you to go recruiting, I'm going to clear you to go to practice, I'm going to clear you to travel with the team, but you have to, you know, you basically have to do it very, very reasonably, like, and you have to pretend like you have COVID, you know, everybody's got COVID again, because I have no immune system, um, or very uh, reduced immune system because of the medicine, so I can get sick easy. And then once you're sick, you have nothing to fight it. So you literally stay sick longer, or else you have to go to the hospital and just be on an IV for a week. So they said, just be careful with everything. And uh and they said, and I remember the doctor saying the last thing as I'm walking out, he goes, Mark, you're doing unbelievable. Don't screw it up. <laughs> and I was like, You must know me really well. And uh so uh yeah, so uh yeah, just, just talked about doing things, you know, basically. Nice and slow. And that's not really who I am. So I was like, okay, yeah, sure. Yeah, I'll be good. And and then, uh, yeah, I got home and I remember the first week being home. I was so excited to be home. I was like doing this because we hadn't been home in like three or four months. Right. So like the house is a wreck and the garden's a wreck and this is blah, blah, blah. I'm like, I gotta do this. I gotta do this. And I like started cramping and I was like I had no muscle right and no what I mean everything was it was pitiful so I was like I gotta slow down so uh yeah. but anyway yeah so that was uh that was when I got back about uh yeah uh, at July 30th and then uh started going to the office a few hours a day just to get acclimated again and then practice started about a week or so ago started going to practice and uh yeah. doing that and yeah so i've been yeah i'm I'm started playing tennis at 12 weeks i was allowed to hit tennis balls for the first time so i did that and uh lasted for about two minutes and (laughs) got really tired and then um so i've been trying to hit about every other day at practice with the guys i just go in and warm up you know for about 10 minutes and Mm -hmm. uh, get used to it again uh i'm doing cardiac rehab now three days a week and then uh which is basically just some fitness stuff and some strength training and mm-hmm. seeing some improvements there. And then just walking a lot with my wife and baby and the other days and i um, supposed to travel next weekend to a tournament. We'll see. Uh, you know, if everything's right. healthy, <laughs> I feel good, I'll, I'll be up grinding away. Uh, you know, yeah.
1: amazing. Wow! What I can't believe we, we're we're going to talk about college tennis now. It kind of seems kind of silly, but what an what an amazing story! You look great, Mark. Uh, yeah, again, just just thrilled that you're you're back at it. And please keep keep taking it easy. I'm sure uh, everybody around you just keeps telling you that. And there's no rush here. We want you back to a hundred percent sooner rather than later. But um, but yeah, I'm interested. I in, know, oh, Mark, how your perspective on life has changed and maybe even you know around the job, you know, and and what's important as it relates to your job as a head coach in, in college tennis.
0: Yeah, great question. I mean, I I kinda uh I always thought I had a pretty decent perspective uh beforehand, uh, because I was, you know, I wanted to be a champion. I always want to win the championships or, you know, be top of this in the nation or do something. And so I was super, super competitive. But I always thought I had a decent perspective with, you know, uh, just saying, hey, let's let's keep it all in view here. The big picture. Right. And and uh, and then um, and then this comes along and, you know, it's a it's a huge punch in the face and punch in the gut at the same time. Right. And you're just like, whoa. And it's very humbling. Uh, it's very it's uh, it, it sets you back. Right. And, and it kind of lets you know, like, hey this is great. I want you to do this, but there's some bigger things out here we need to focus on. Right. And, and, you know, I, I, uh, well, we talked a little bit in the beginning about, you know, like the importance of the encouragement and the inspiration, like when I was in the hospital, but uh, I mean that I've always been, uh, I think I'm like a positive guy and an optimistic guy. And I help people in a lot of different ways. And I always try to do stuff and I'm a decent guy. I'm not good. I'm just decent. And, uh, but like, after going through that, I was like, man, you know, I need to do something, right? I need to do some more, right? And I mean, these people are just going ab- above and beyond, you know, caring for me and loving me. And and uh, so I think one of the big perspectives was just about, you know, like, hey, how am I really, how am I you know, really going to reach out after this, right? Because, you know, we, we talk about it in sports, we talk about it in life, but we always say that you know, your hardship or disciplines are what allow you to get stronger. And, and then with me and my faith, I, I I always talk about hardships uh, as creating new ministry options and opportunities. Right. And so um, I was like, what's, you know, what's going to be next. And and I mean, it doesn't mean I'm not going to be a college coach, but there's going to be something out there Mm -hmm. that, that I I probably need to invest in, right. (laughs) And and, uh, make myself open to. Um, So I think that's one of the big things that changed was like where 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 will i plug in after this right and and cuz i had certain things i was doing beforehand with like you know tennis obviously and then like church and community and neighborhood and da 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 and now it's like boom this is a this is a different this is a whole like different avenue right and so um uh uh one of the doctors uh, that that took care of me favorite doctor in the world, Dr. Vanessa Bloomer. She's, uh, you know, basically by my side for for 12 weeks in the hospital. And uh, uh, she started to plug me in with some different things uh, with the heart failure associations and uh, asked me to be on uh, some committees and whatnot. And and like next week I'm going to talk at, uh, I'm doing, yeah, I'm going to talk at the a convention for the heart failure association and tell my story and whatnot. And uh, she's like, you know, there's going to be some doors that open for you. So, so I think uh, perspective wise there is for me to like, look for those open doors, right. And figure out how I'm going to help some people. Um, I still feel like I have the same perspective, like about life in general, like a positive outlook. And, Mm -hmm. and, you know, I mean, for me, I, I was, it was, it was a struggle to go through that, but with my faith in God, I knew that I always put things in his hands. And so I knew he was in control whether I was going to get out of this or whether I was going to be six feet under. And, and I, I was, my wife was in the same place and we were both, very not comfortable, but we were somewhat content in understanding like this is out of our hands. Right. And um, so I'm still, you know, that way now uh, have that kind of contentment and understanding that, you know, God's in control of things. But at the same time, you know, I want to really go and, and do something and, and help some people and make a difference and and figure out what's next uh, in that, you know, I guess that next stage in my life.
1: Okay, and what about physical goals, Mark? Is there anything you set your eye on, like okay, in a year's time, I want to be able to? You said you were training for a ten k before you got really sick. Is there anything like that? You're like, I'm gonna I'm gonna tackle this physical challenge.
0: Yeah, I actually did this in the hospital, and I really wish I didn't. But uh, I told I told the doctors and the nurses, I said, trust me. I said, when I get this hard, I'm gonna be running a marathon in a few years. And I said, I'm going to be that guy that you see on TV and they'd say, they'd show my scar, and, you know, say, yeah, yeah. And I said, uh, they're like, okay, okay, okay. Hey, listen, you know, you know, that happens, but just let's keep things real. And I was like, no, no, I'm going to do it. So, uh, so I, am not even a runner. I hate running. Like, I mean, yep. I, I ran my whole life right for tennis and doing the sprints on the court and whatever. You tell me to go jog and it's like, it's like, it's like slow death. Right. And, uh, uh, so, but I said, I'm going to go do this, you know? And so I want to start training like that and get fit like that. And I told my doctor, uh, uh, Dr. Bloomer, I said, uh, yes, I'm tired of eating, being fat and sloppy. I'm getting my pro body back. And she's laughed and she's like, you're 52 years old, Mark, stop. And, uh, so no, I, I just, I think I just, uh, I just want to get fit again, you know, and, and, and take care of things I had already like on the, on the, on the I took care of my body on like the food side and the health side, different things. Right. But the last five, 10 years, you, know, you just get just get a little lazy and slow. And um, uh, so, uh, you know, this is a nice little kickstart for me to to want to go do something. And, and, you know, and as I said, in the beginning, I have a new daughter, right? she's a year old and mm-hmm. uh, that's our first baby. And you know, I want to be around. Right. And uh, even though I'm going to be 70 when she's learning to drive, uh, <laughs> it's uh, I still want to be around for it. Right. Yeah. So I want to be able to go and run around with her. I want to go be in, you know, if she wants to play tennis, that's the great. I want to be doing that. If, if she's going to be a pro golfer, like I really, really hope, please, I'll be her caddy uh, <laughs> and carry her bag. Uh, um, yeah. But okay. uh, yeah, so just, I, I think fitness wise, I want to, Yeah. I want to, uh, you know, take uh take some steps. Right. And, and, and say like, let's start doing something again. And uh, um I, I don't know if a marathon's going to happen. I mean, that's that that's got to be right, and that happens to some people. It all depends on how your heart goes. Yeah. You know, just, all so. right.
1: Well, if if you pick a marathon, let me know. Maybe uh, I'll show up and do it with you. Maybe other college coaches we can come yeah, and run it with you. <laughs> that would be that would be a lot of fun. So no no pressure. But if you get to that point, you can do it. Please please let us know, and we'll we'll put out a call to action.
0: And now I'm on recording saying it. This is the worst thing I could have possibly said. And now nobody <laughs> has evidence of me saying this. So you're going to hold me to it. Well, you put it out there
1: and it's uh, <laughs> good to do that, right? People can hold you accountable. Well, let's let's switch gears a little bit here, Mark. And we'll go into kind of some of the advice we like to, to share, uh, get into these podcasts, and and especially for our younger coaches who are listening and want to learn from, from the more experienced coaches. But, you know, you... You spent approximately nine years as an assistant coach at LSU, which these days is is a long stretch in Division one college athletics across all sports. But had you applied for any other head coaching positions before Tulane, or were you just waiting for the right situation? I guess I'm interested in how you landed at Tulane.
0: Yeah, uh, um, it's. It's a great question because I get this question from a lot of young coaches now. Right. Like, hey, what, you know, what route do I take? You know, do I go in to be yep. an assistant at a big place or do I go head coach at a small place at and, and this thing or, you know, and build up the thing? And I said, everybody's got a, everybody's got their own path. Right. And it's what you feel, what you feel comfortable and where you feel led to be. And so I was very, very fortunate. Jeff Brown, uh, LSU coach at the time, best guy in the world, literally didn't know me from Adam. And I called him and I had the job in a week and, and I stayed there with him for 10 years. And he's, he's uh, literally the best guy in the world. And a uh, great coach taught me so much and um so thankful for the opportunity there. And uh, so I guess the, the, the question was like, yeah, you know, Hey, did you ever start looking for other jobs? So yeah, about after, I don't know, maybe six or seven years or something like that, I started applying and I never felt the need to go to be a head coach because I I was like, I liked what I was doing. You know, I liked how I could um, connect with the team as an assistant coach. I liked the things I was doing in my ministry in town, with my church, with different things. It was just it was all kind of it was all fitting together really nicely. And I wasn't like motivated to go make a billion dollars. And I knew you're not really going to do that in college tennis anyway. Uh, And I was uh, I was very I was very happy doing what I was doing there, and um, and I I'd, uh, uh, I'd put a lot of faith uh, again in God and His plan, and said, you know, like, hey, if He wants to open a door for me, then He'll start make me look at things, and and I'll start considering things. And I think one of the big challenges that we hear with a lot of young coaches and you know, with old guys like me is people who get a little bit, uh, you know, maybe uneasy or, unrest, you know, they're not, they're not resting well on their job. I need something more. This job has this, or that one has this, or my budget's not big enough, or did you see that facility? We Our windscreens are coming down? you know, <laughs> something, right? And and so uh, you hear like people always thinking they need something better or something different. And, and I didn't think that, you know, I was like, I love doing what I'm doing. I love working with Jeff. I love working with the guys. And if the door's open and I start getting that itch, then we'll start looking. So uh, I started getting the itch, you know, a little bit later. And I think maybe it's because some doors open and some people contacted me or whatever. And so that was like year seven, six, seven. And then I uh, started looking at it more more seriously in the eighth and ninth year and started applying for some jobs. And um, uh, I, I, I think in those last two years, I I either finished second or or something like that, and like five Power Five jobs, a um, couple of three SEC jobs, a couple ACC jobs, a couple of different things. Right. And so I was like, oh man, I'm not gonna, you know, and it was like, hey, just be patient. You're, you know, you're the next guy that's gonna get the Power Five job. And I was like, okay, cool. Yep. You know? And then, uh, um, uh, so it just, you know, just kept me impatient with it. And all of a sudden, I got a call out of nowhere from the, from the uh, friend who is uh, a friend of the AD here. And he's like, hey, Mark, you know, Tulane's rebuilding their program from scratch. You want to be the coach? And I was like, that sounds interesting, right? And, and uh, you know, if, for people that don't know, Tulane, uh, in 2005, Hurricane Katrina came in and basically wiped out New yep. Orleans in a lot of ways. And so Tulane canceled eight of their programs, their athletic programs, and two men's and women's tennis were one of them and so we didn't have a tennis team for four years and um uh right before that they had like their two best years or two of their best years they were finished like 13 in the country and 18 in the country and then all of a sudden katrina comes mm-hmm. and uh um and so i was like oh this is interesting you know it's a great school it's in a great city it's uh, you know great academic pull for these you know tennis student athletes it's great weather you know and it's in a, you know what great conference great opportunities and I was like this could be a really interesting opportunity to do something really unique and um uh you know basically to do something nobody's ever done right you taking a team of those top 25 and then they get canceled and mm-hmm. then you're going from scratch and make them top 25 again or something I was like this is this is this is this is cool right and this is this is you know I kept getting led to kind of consider it more and more and more and, and uh and I know it's it pretty much every coach that I talked to and told them about this opportunity. They're like, don't do it, Mark. And I'm, and I'm not even lying. I mean, it's like, everyone was like, it's, it's a dead end job. It's never going to happen. And I mean, it's pretty powerful coaches who told me this and I was like, okay, okay. Thanks for the help. And, uh, and, uh, and uh, Jeff was very supportive. I think he wanted to get rid of me actually. Uh, So (laughs) he's like, Mark, go get it. But uh, no, he knew kind of where I was with my perspective and things. And I just said, this is going to be a really cool opportunity to do something unique and, and to, to help. Uh, So there was another aspect, which was like, okay, so hurricane Katrina happened. Right. And I mean, the city's wiped out. Right. And and we're seeing all these people do these things for new Orleans and people from all over the world coming in to help the, you know, the city and, and I remember being in Baton Rouge and we were helping in different ways. And I was and I started praying about it. I said, you know, God, how can I how can I use my skills to help people? Right. Maybe I'll go, you know, I don't know, feed feed people, hand out T-shirts, do something. I don't know, whatever it is. Right. I, I, and talk to people or just you know sit with people that are in need. And I prayed about it for like literally a year. And it was like, how can you use me to do something? And and uh and put this on my heart. And he said, here you go. Go get this job and uh go rebuild a program and and help rebuild the community and i was like okay that's a pretty big thing to ask you know you could have just said let's go hand out some t-shirts and you know <laughs> give some money to poor or something right and and uh, so i but again you know i felt i, I felt a, a real a big calling to do it and uh on top of that i thought it was a really cool job and um uh, you know, I'd never lived in New Orleans before. I'd only been there once when I was in Baton Rouge, and I wasn't even really a fan of the city. I just said, "Okay, let's go do this." And uh, yeah, so that my path was very different than a lot of people's paths. And and you know, when I talk to people about that today, I still say like, "Hey, maybe it's your maybe it's your opportunity to go and be this head coach at this big you know job or this big power five or maybe excuse me, an assistant coach at this you know, power five job for a couple of years. Maybe you want to stay there for ten years. I don't know." Right. But Everybody's got their path, and you have to be content with what you do. And um, the people that make the tough decisions are the ones where you can see their discontent, right? And they're like, no, I just, you know, my coach is an idiot and he won't give me any of this or that, or he won't do whatever. And I was like, okay, just, it's okay. Just, be patient, be patient. Something's going to doors are going to open, you know, and let's yeah. make the decision with the right, the, the right kind of, you know, perspective and attitude, not out of anger or not out of like, you know, whatever. And, and so, um, but I've, I've actually, I guess I did this more back maybe before I was sick or something, but helping different coaches, like trying to figure out and different paths and whatnot. And that's really been fulfilling for me as well, being a slight mentor in different ways. But, uh, but it's, it's a, uh, Again same thing everybody's got their own path and, and mine was very very different, and very unique.
1: Yeah so Mark, you've obviously had a lot of time to think over the last several months probably too too much time but I know in in reflection I mean especially when I walked away from college coaching, I look back on like when I started at 28 and uh, I, I feel so bad for those players that I coach It's like I was I thought I was a good coach but I was terrible. And, and if I went back to coaching now, I'd be, you know, five times the coach I was then. But how, did you think about, I mean, especially as you're returning to college tennis, maybe you had too much else on your mind to even reflect upon your college coaching career. But maybe how do you think you've improved as a coach over the last few decades?
0: Great question. I would reword the question and say, have you improved as a coach over the last couple of days?
1: I know you have. I'm sure you have. We all have. We just don't reflect upon it. So, (laughs) (laughs)
0: Um, no, I think. um, uh, The biggest thing that I've seen different is. and this is before i was sick probably um uh is is patience right and 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 mm-hmm. we'll, let's go on a like a different angle like administrative patience like let's not even talk about hitting forehands and backhands and developing players right mm-hmm. like I mean, what we do is a lot of administrative stuff right we 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 work with our administration we have to recruit we have to do all these different things and then being on court is you know when i say yeah that's my job i'm a coach i love feeding balls and doing this and developing players but you know, there's there's a lot of different parts of this job that are it's important that you really attack them or approach them with the right uh with the with the right speed, right? And and um and I remember just in the beginning I was, you know, this this coach was like, Yeah, I wanna go win a championship, I gotta do this, I gotta do that, I gotta blah blah blah. No, no, we need this, no, we need that. I mean, it sounds like every single tennis coach that's trying to get the new job, right? And and they're like, Yeah, he, he but you need that kind of hunger. And then it's not yeah. that I don't have that hunger anymore, but it's like, there's a different, maybe patience with approaching how to, you know, how, what's going to allow you to be successful. Right. And I remember when we, you know, we had this awesome tennis facility right outside my window here. And, and, uh, it was like right in the middle of campus and perfect for this and recruiting. And I love it. I was like, eh, this is going to be great. Recruits are going to love this. And after year four, they came and said, Hey, Mark, return down your facility to build a football stadium. Oh my god. Play off campus. And I was like, where? And they're like at a local t- a local park. And I was like, Are you kidding me? <laughs> You're you you want me what you know, part of the reason I took the job is because it's all like, you know, so yeah. and cool, and there's this great thing we could give to recruits and and they'll love it. And I was like, And I remember just like losing my mind. Right. And, and making bad decisions. Right. (laughs) Like arguing with people. And, uh, you know, once I finally kind of settled down with it, you know, the funny part of the story is we didn't even make the NCAA tournament until they kicked us off campus. Right. So like that's when we started developing players. Right. So it was like uh, I get off campus and we're driving to a park every day, local park. And uh, then all of a sudden our team starts getting better. I'm not saying there's a correlation there. I'm just saying that it's interesting that I thought my life was going to go downhill when they took away my facility, our facility. Mm-hmm. And, uh, and actually things turned and all of a sudden we made the NCAA tournament for like six years in a row or something. And we had all these, you know, these, these great teams come up and jumping in the top, whatever, 25 ish kind of thing. And, you know, um, and so it was like, again, there's a perspective thing, right? And, and, and so I think now when I look at things like that, I look and say like, okay, you know, get some bad news, what's the first response going to be, you know? And so that's where that word maybe patience comes in a little bit. And so I, maybe it's a guy who's injured or something or a guy who comes in and does the wrong thing and, you know,
1: mm-hmm.
0: sick or does something on a day of big match, you know, instead of like, you know, just losing my mind or whatever, why are you doing this? There's a little bit more patience with that and understanding that, Hey, okay, this happened. Like, okay, maybe it's an opportunity for the next guy to come in, right. And play number number seven guy to jump in the lineup and, you know, he's going to be our next star or something, right? So there's lots of different things that uh, that are in play that you start to look at the bigger picture of things and maybe not as not as uh, just kind of cut and dry, black and white. Like this, this way it needs to be, or else I can't be successful. And um, so I think that's probably that's probably the. That's probably the biggest way that I've grown as a coach. Um yeah. I'm still doing the same drills I did 25 years ago. <laughs> and guys hate them. Uh but <laughs> yeah no, no, that
1: that's, that's uh, I can definitely relate to the patience. May, maybe as you get older, most people, I don't always say everybody, maybe maybe just naturally you become a little bit more patient, but uh maybe not. I don't know. But I I'd agree if I went back to coaching, I'd be a lot more patient as well than, than I was at, at 28 but you know as as we're looking at the current landscape of of college athletics the the modern day student-athlete um what are some skills that you think well yourself the current generation of college coaches and and definitely the next generation of college coaches should be thinking about developing within themselves is there anything you can point to and go wow like the in order to manage all this craziness that's going on in in the college athletics world and then the modern day student athlete i need to become really good at
0: x yeah uh great question um uh communication and mm-hmm. uh relational building relationship building so um and that goes from literally on the court right with your with your player to you know, going to ask somebody for $5 million for a tennis facility. Right. I mean, we've got so many different aspects of this job that, you know, I remember listening to Brad talk about this dancer you know, years ago, he said, we're like you know CEOs in our own way. Right. And, and, and one of your podcasts, uh, uh, and I was like, you really have so many different things you're doing. Right. But every one of those things is based on a relationship. Right. So maybe it's me talking to my ID or my supervisor, right. It's gotta be, it's a relational thing. And, and, but, I don't know, 15 20 years ago i was, I was uh, fortunate enough to be you know down the hall or next next room down from a coach named skip Bertman, who was a baseball coach at lsu won five or six national championships like literally when they were, had nothing and built the program into like the the most powerhouse program in the in america and uh and he came and talked to us um I, 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 he was he became the ad after he retired from baseball and he said guys you know, you remember I'm talking to the coaches, and this one thing stuck with me. He goes, "This is not about facilities. This job is not about you getting a new facility. This job is not about you getting a bigger budget. This job is about relationships. Because every single thing you do is based on a relationship. So whether you're recruiting a player, whether you're coaching a player, whether you're talking to your assistant coach, whether you're talking to your supervisor, your your AD, whether you're talking to a booster." You have, to ha- you have to believe in this, right? And you have to build these relationships. And so when people know that you're investing in them and care about them, then they want to invest, right? And they want to be part of what you're doing, right? Then that recruit wants to come here. So the recruit's coming here because of you, not because of your facility, not because of you know your, your, your whatever status of the conference or this, or that. They're coming here because you. And I was like, okay. And so that, yeah, I remember hearing that 20 years ago and that really sat with me. And so you ask this question, and I can just think about every aspect, you know, that that we do has to do with, you know, me communicating with somebody. Mm -hmm. And, And I can actually say, like, some of the biggest failures that I've seen in college on my on my you know uh plate have to do with me not communicating well, right? And so like a guy maybe falls through the cracks or starting to fall through the cracks, I realized, geez, I didn't do my job. I haven't been talking to this kid. I haven't been reaching out, seeing how he's doing or, you know, uh doing things like that. And and um and that's even been more, you know, uh uh prevalent in this last year of mine, right? I mean, I was basically unable to coach for about I don't know, most, most of the year last year. Yeah. So, you know, I, I lost a lot of touch with the guys. Obviously we're texting all the time. My guys are amazing, you know, caring for me so much and loving on me. But I mean, you know, you see some of those relationships fall off because I wasn't around and I wasn't available. Mm-hmm. And uh, so, you know, really trying to rebuild those now. And, and I'm so excited about being back. Right. But I mean, yeah. you just got to see some things that, that happen, right. As, as, as you don't make the investment in that. So I think, you know, a lot of us are, you know, have the good energy. We know tennis, we know this, we know that, but do you know how to communicate with people? You know, do you know how to, uh, well, whatever, whatever level, do you know how to sell your program? Okay. Do you know how to, you know, talk to this guy who you're going to ask for money? Do you know how to, you know, talk to this guy who you're trying to get him to uh, justice for him a little bit. Right. And how do you communicate with people? Is it just on your way, which is black and white, is my way or the highway, or are you meeting people where they are? And I think, um, I think that's probably a, a catchphrase I've used for about 20 or 30 years. Is that it's it's really important for me to meet people where they are, and because uh, that's that way I take my agenda kind of off the table and just say, hey, you know, what does Dave need right now? And uh, you know, what does this guy need or that whatever? And and then it's about them. It's not about me just you know going winning championships, but it's about me developing a relationship. And you know, life is about relationships. Period. So even if you're not a tennis coach, you know, and uh, uh, yeah, I tell my guys this every day, life's about relationships. So you better start learning how to do it now. Put your phone down, stop doing the social media and start talking to the guys, right? Yeah. So we have these like things where we like, put their phone down at dinner or the team dinner and they're not allowed to, you know, look at their phone. They have to talk to one another. It's kind of funny we do this now, but you have yeah. to do it. <laughs> oh, okay, <right. laughs> yeah, yeah. So, but yeah, I think that's yeah. it.
1: So, Mark, I think one of the great stories in recent years coming out of college tennis is Dominic Kofer, one of your former players at, at Tulane, who obviously improved every year, had a great college career. I, I don't want to say he started this recent wave of, of, you know, just onslaught of players coming through the college system, but I feel like he was at the forefront. Obviously, we had, you know, the very top players like an Isner, who was around for for, for many years and other players. But I feel like that run he made at the U S open, I can't remember if it was a third round or fourth round. I felt like since then, there's been just this trail of, of college players coming through, but I'm interested just kind of what are some of the attributes you saw in him over the time that you coached him that kind of set him apart. And then how you, try to instill some of those attributes or if you do in, in the
0: other players that you coach now? Great question. Yeah. Uh, I mean, I love Tom Dominic's story. He's, uh, what a kid. I mean, just a just did everything right. Like, like the, yeah, he was your basic college kid, but he just listened so hard. He did well in school. He worked Mm -hmm. so hard. He, uh, uh, it was just this nonstop kind of effort by him. And, um, you know, I mean, for people that don't know the story, he was unrecruited by any school in America and literally unrecruited, right? And so I had a friend, Edgar Gifnick, who's, you know, national coach, federation coach for Germany and USTA and all these different things. Mark, you got to take a look at this kid. I was like, dude, what's his ranking? And he goes, yeah, he's ranked like 440 in Germany. And I was <laughs> like, Edgar, I'm ranked 120 right now. And I play, you know, two tournaments in Germany per year, right? And I said, uh, I said, you know, I said, does he play in turn? He goes, no, he plays tennis like two days a week, three days a week. He plays three sports. And I was like, you know, and Edgar, if you know Edgar, he's coached literally the top players in the world his whole life. He's literally the best tennis coach in the world. Okay. Mm -hmm. And and, at least I think he is. And uh, he says, I'm just telling you, Mark, I was with him at this clinic in Germany last week. He hits a good ball. He moves well. I know your programs, you know, he he knew I was restarting kind of, and this is like at year four or something, year five. And uh, um, and he goes, "Just, just take a look at him. And I was like, okay, cool, go over there. Within two minutes, watching the kid warm up, I'm like, this guy's going to be number one on my team at least in a couple of years because he's been okay. develop. I said, I think he's going to be an all American. And I said, I've never seen somebody hit the ball as clean as like like this It's like Andre Agassi. It was a joke. And uh, as and wow. and uh, so uh, so I made an offer he committed and and um, uh, yeah, so he comes over and just but. So, like, that's the kind of the beginning of the story. Like, he didn't even play tennis full-time, really. I mean, he did when he was, like, 12 and 13, and then he kind of broke off and did his own thing. And so, but when he got here, just this, this constant, this this constant, uh, that could very consistent effort by him, right? And uh, he had, if anybody knows him and watched him play, he's got a very, very fiery attitude, right? And, uh, and you know, he's... he's He could really light it up sometimes with the emotions on the court. And and so that was a good thing, but also was a bad thing, right? Because he could get negative and whatnot. And I saw him, you know, listen to his coaches in ways that we tried to settle him down mentally, right? And tried to kind of bring him in a little bit and say, let's use some of this. Let's use some more of this energy in the right way, right? And let's not waste the energy in the wrong way. But and so like on a mental side of things, he was just he was a sponge. He just listened. And, and so when I would talk to him on the court, if I'd be sitting with him on the court, I say, hey, I want you to do this. He would go and do that. Or if I want, I could walk out to him, slow him down. He would slow down and he would start to respond to a lot of the stuff. You're like, OK, uh, Mark, great story. Everybody does that. A lot of kids do that. But, you know, a lot of kids don't don't really they don't do it consistently. Right. So when people say what separates him from a lot of the players you coached that are good I said, just the the consistent effort, right? I mean, this guy's asking me for individuals outside of his individuals, right? And he's asking me for like, I got to go do this on my serve, where I want to work my forehand. Like, we developed a serve and forehand a little bit, and and you know, he was he was hungry to do this, and and this is on top of us running him to death at practice every day. You know, I mean, just like run on these insane, you know, practices, and he's like, no, I I need more, and and he didn't like he didn't even think that he was going to be a pro player. Like he, at one point, I mean, after his junior year, when he was ranked like top 20 or made all American, I was like, Hey, Tom, you should consider trying to play a future this summer. He goes, no chance. And I was <laughs> like, I was like, Tom, you, yeah, you're a pretty good player, you know? And, and uh, he's like, yeah, yeah because I'm not good enough to be a pro. And I said, I'm not saying you have to go pro, but I think you should, you know, maybe go play some futures. And, and uh, I remember just looking at him in this chair over here and, and saying, uh, I'd like you to go play some futures, you know, in Germany. And he goes, well, I don't know if I can get in. And I was like, yeah, you have a German rational ranking. You can probably get in.
1: Mm-hmm.
0: And uh, I said, give yourself a shot at this next level here because I think you're, you're going the right direction. And he goes, yeah, yeah whatever. So he goes and plays and he makes an ATP point or something. And I remember how excited we were. And and I was like, I told you. And then he uh, <laughs> uh, uh, came back his, his senior year. And and as you know, he had this you know insane run in the fall where he made like – Final of Oracle and final of All American and won National Indoor and and was ranked one for like twenty weeks or something and in, in the spring and but uh, but again the the effort was second to none and I so I mean I can look back in twenty five years of coaching and. You know, I, I had been a part of some other people that have, you know, won Grand Slam champions, right? And like you think about like the Michael Venuses and and uh, uh, the Neil Skupsky's. I didn't coach Neil, but uh, there's another great story from LSU. Uh, yeah. But um, but like Michael was the same way, right? And I mean, this guy just wanted more. He wanted. He's always wanted more. He always wanted and, and was was satisfied, but just always knew he could do more, right? Mm-hmm. And think about all the guys that made the top hundred or top did this, and they all had like this trait where they were hungry for it right and so the guys that are that are we have on the team are all super hungry in different ways but you know how self-motivated are you right and I think you know everybody goes and does what they're supposed to do and what I say to do right and uh, but you know would you take that next step and are you self-motivated to do something else and um, and uh, you know Dom was you know, just the epitome of that right and he still is today I mean last year he's out for six or eight months with an injury with a shoulder, awful injury, just annoying. Couldn't get it better. Finally got it better. Right. And you just saw that persistence mm-hmm. in him training and rehabbing, giving himself the opportunity and waiting it out. Right. And keep on working, working. And then he made a huge run this year. Right. Um, I got injured at the U S open, which is bad luck, but you know, you see that persistence again, where he's, he's got that self motivation. So do you, is there something you can, you know, I, I tell the story all the time. Right. I mean, I, 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 uh, i i tell i tell the story last week i told the story of a guy that had the same kind of attributes i got i was very lucky to work with ben shelton a couple summers ago with the it or with the usta college team mm-hmm. and uh and ben was you know just just worried like hey i don't want some more feeds i want some of this and we we're like we on playing for three hours in the florida heat everybody's cramping dying he's like i don't need more feeds so i was like Okay, can we take a 15 minute break or you know and then go get some water. He goes, "Yeah, yeah, but I mean this guy just worked 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 worked. Like for 4 yeah. weeks of the summer when I was with him, I was like this is unbelievable. This kid just wants to keep working." And uh and obviously, you know, Brian is the best coach in the world and nicest guy ever and um but being around Ben and Brian, I was watching Ben just work 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 and and uh and and then I told the guys I said, "Hey, this is an interesting story." And I said, you know, Interesting how these kind of things are connected, right? And now the guys in the semifinals of the U.S. Open, and yeah. I think the connection is they listened to me. No, I, I said uh, <laughs> I said the connection is they just wanted to work, right? right. And there's lots of guys there that were super talented on the team and are still fantastic players and probably going to go and do great things. Mm-hmm. But it's interesting how this guy wanted to do more and kept on doing more, and then all of a sudden won the NCAAs next year, right? And then turned pro and right so. There's that there's that uh, that that desire right that self motivation to go and do something.
1: Yeah. And and Mark just just one one last question. We'll get into some rapid fire questions, but just you know you serve the ITA as a volunteer in, in lots of different capacities through the years, and and something I try to talk about on, on this podcast because I think a lot of coaches, especially new to the industry, don't necessarily understand how much we the ITS staff rely on coaches volunteering and, and putting in um, the time to help with the infrastructure of college tennis and, and how many decisions our are, are coaches truly make on behalf of college tennis. But how did you first get involved and, and why?
0: Yeah, uh, I didn't want to. <laughs> <laughs> Thanks. It's been like what, 10, 15, years, 12, 12 years? I don't even know how long I've been doing it. So uh, but I remember George Hussack, uh, you know, it's just in the region. He's like, hey Mark, you want to be on this, you know, regional committee? And I was like, ah, come on. And I was like, what is it? You know, and he goes, oh it's it's just a couple hours every so often. And mm-hmm. I was like, okay, whatever, yeah, sure, I'll do it. And then I started getting plugged in with like the regional committee, and I did that for, you know, like you do it for a couple years at a time, right? And I did it again. And and uh, but then I I started to kind of see uh, the impact, right? Like there's an actual impact that you have not only on your region, but on nation and in college tennis in general. Yep. And, um, and so it started to get plugged in more and more. And then you guys um, uh, uh, graciously invited me to do some different things. And, and, um, uh, but I think the the exciting thing about it is, I mean, so if you ask anybody like, Hey, you want to serve on a committee, it's exciting. You're never going to say that. Right. But the exciting thing is, is that you get to see all these people working together at all different levels to create an environment that's best for everybody. And that's a challenging thing, like you said. Right. And so, I mean, we're talking about, you know, the head honchos, right? The the big names in college tennis coaching. And then we're talking about the little names in college tennis coaching. Right. And everybody's kind of working together, trying to say, like, hey, what can we do for you know, for our sport, for our, uh, the betterment of our sport and the evolution of our sport. And, and uh, I I started to see that after doing it for a few years. Um, I started to see that after doing it for a few years and, um, and, I really love the investment there. And it was like, it's, it's fun to be on the calls with guys and listening to different you know perspectives from the, from the big 10 guy who's, you know, winning championships to the, you know, to the, to the, to the D three coach who's doing this or that on a rules committee call or whatnot. And you get to hear all these different sides of things. So I think it's, I think it, serving on the, serving the IT is, is super valuable because, we are literally trying to make it better for me, right. For, for, you know, Maru next door for the coach at the D three level of a coach that's trying to win a national championship. Right. We're trying to do everything together. And and I think it's really cool to see what you guys do. Um, You and Tim have been, you know, amazing with how you've uh, uh, led in the last, how many years and, and uh, and, and really kind of taking us into a, a, a new, you know, a new landscape, right? I mean, as we know, college tennis or I in mean, college athletics is changing. So the job has gotten even tougher, but, but, uh, I, I applaud both of you guys for all your hard work and and thank you for bringing me along in it.
1: Yeah. Thank you, Mark. Thank you for all, all your service. And Like I said, glad to, to that, that you're back. And we had a D1 operating committee meeting earlier this week, had to make some important decisions and, and, uh, your voice is so, so valuable. Your experience is, is, uh, yeah, especially with with new committee members and just you know learning h- how we do business and and you do uh, do it with such integrity and and uh, and and you make it fun as well. So it's good to have you back. But let's get into some rapid fire questions. Oh. What's the favorite drill to do with your team?
0: Favorite drill or most fun drill? Okay, uh, ding
1: favorite. ding, <laughs> ding ding. What ding, what's ding. that? <laughs>
0: <laughs> Learned it from my favorite, one of my favorite coaches ever, James McKay, who's the associate head coach at Tennessee. So serving volley, a half court drill, one serve and volley, and you gotta get to the other side. If you win a certain amount of points, and once you get to two, you have to yell "ding ding," and then everybody watches you, and you play this high pressure point. If you lose that, you go back to zero. Okay, All right. <laughs> that's a lot of fun. No, right. most overused drill by me is uh, movement control drills. So probably favorite drill is I do movement control stuff like nonstop. But favorite drill, ding ding
1: okay ding ding uh is there a most impactful book movie conversation quote maybe a bible verse uh
0: that has impacted your coaching career uh to date yeah the book be the bible for sure uh i live my life by it and i can give 100 uh, verses that have meant something and and uh you know there's 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 lots of different things you know but you know it's that's been guiding my life for for the last probably thirty years, and and uh, and it's very very applicable to everything that I'm doing as a coach.
1: Very good. Um, what is you're on the rules committee? So what is one contravi- controversial rule change for college tennis that you think might make it even more appealing?
0: Appealing, okay.
1: <laughs> yeah, appealing to the uh, mass crazy out there that, that you've thought of that maybe you haven't brought up on a committee meeting. Cause you're oh boy. embarrassed. Oh. It'd be too controversial.
0: I don't know. Uh, that's a good question. <laughs> uh, I don't know. Um, I think the, the rules that we're changing now, you know, the, with the, with the bench stuff, I think that's going to be interesting to see how we can put that together because yeah. it's, it could create a better bench situation, right. With, where the guys are together and doing things, and, you know, it's going to get rid of a lot of uh, uh, mess that we have. Um, but uh, that's a little controversial. I mean, I, I haven't heard one coach tell me, yeah, I love it. So, and, <laughs> but uh, um, uh, appealing, I have to think about that one. I that's okay. Them.
1: That's all right. I, I wasn't sure if there's one top of mind. I've heard some
0: coaches give some ideas and they're like, you know, I remember one coach who's arguably one of the best coaches in the world. Again, uh, said like, uh, you know, uh, no, I won't say it.
1: Forget. <laughs> <laughs> all right. All right. We'll leave that one. Um, who is your favorite college tennis player of all time, who who you have not coached, not from one of your teams at LSU or Tulane or that you played with at West Virginia? Who just you watch them and just like Ben Shelton. Ben Shelton.
0: Ed Sheldon, okay. just one kid. I mean, let okay. invited me in and, 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 and a couple of weeks and built a relationship with him and his dad. And I mean, unbelievable family. They're, they're a truly amazing family.
1: All right. Well, I think everybody's a fan now after that U.S. Open. That was, so. that was cool. Um, should there be a recruiting calendar for college tennis? Yes. yes. or no? Yes. Okay. Um, all right, last question. If your daughter decided to become a college tennis coach and she won't because she's going to be a pro golfer and you could only give her one piece of advice, what would it be?
0: Um has to do with passion and it, it has this has to be your passion, right? And do it because you love it and because you want to invest in others, right? I mean, this this job is it's not about making a million dollars. Everybody knows that, right? And you're, you're teaching or you're coaching because you love coaching and teaching, right? And so um, I would say, I'd say, hey, Georgiana, if you're going to do this, you've got to be passionate about it. Don't just do it because it's the only thing out there and you think it's, you know, you don't want to be feeding balls at a, at a country club or something. I said, you've got to have a passion to do this and and uh, and build relationships with those around you and and, uh, and be part of something special
1: very good well mark it took a, a heart transplant to get you on the podcast thanks to get you on a second time you're gonna to have to get a hair transplant
0: <laughs> so. we'll see if this new heart's grown as it's, it's 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 uh maybe it's, it's back. coming
1: through it's <laughs> coming through but no this has been a blast thank you for all your time uh so great to have you back and and hope you'll be around for uh many more decades in the college coaching ranks so thank you for everything.
0: Thanks, David. Had a blast, and I'll see you at the next one.